You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Welcome, listeners. This week, we're joined by Ed Dodson. We're going inside Fannie Mae in the lead-up to the global financial crisis. Ed retired in 2005 after 35 years in the U.S. financial services sector. He began as an accountant, worked his way up through the banking industry, joined Fannie Mae in 1984, became a manager of risk oversight within the business, Ed is a graduate of Shippensburg and Temple Universities in Pennsylvania. He runs the incredible website, cooperative-individualism.org. That's cooperative-individualism.org and works as an archivist for the Henry George Birthplace Archive Center in Philadelphia. So, Ed, it must have been quite something, you retiring in 2005, just as things uh, were about to blow apart. Uh, How obvious was it that uh, there were plenty of risky practices uh, endangering the economy? Well, for those of us who were working in the trenches at the time, it was no big surprise. I mean, I had been looking at, you know, property value data uh, from the late 1990s and watching the almost continuous increase in property prices and you know based on my insights derived from from understanding land markets really knew that we were in a land bubble and it was just a matter of time before that bubble was going to burst uh, as each year went on the risk just became more uh, intense Fannie Mae contributed to that problem in a way that not very many people recognize or understand, not even those of my colleagues on the inside. And that was every year our analysts would look at uh, median residential property prices. And as the property prices increased, we would increase our maximum loan limits. So we basically enabled uh, the speculative character of the markets by increasing the amount of loan that we were willing to buy or securitize. And so that just simply got capitalized into the market to, um, you know, continue to press property prices upward. And so as our main interest, and not just Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, but but the banks, uh, everyone involved in the real estate uh, business, the main interest is keep keeping transaction volumes up. And in order to do that, we had to begin to make many accommodations like a constant reduction in cash down payment required for a transaction, becoming more flexible in terms of credit worthiness standards. And when that wasn't sufficient, we would have to come up with innovative you know, product ideas like, for example, the, the interest-only mortgage loan as well as adjustable rate mortgages that had initial low low interest rates to get people in and then be subject to indexed adjustments as time went on. So the whole industry was trying to keep the transaction volume going and then the consequences ended up being that that property became unaffordable and We moved into that environment where a subprime mortgage business took over a larger and larger share of the market, and that 
share of the business was characterized by a lot of fraud and, and actual criminal activity. So, Ed, how were these new adventurous lending practices developed? Well, you know, our institution, every institution had its product development group. And, you know, we had competition at Fannie Mae to design new product initiatives that would increase our market share or preserve our market share. And we were mandated by our by the Congress of the United States and by our regulators to increase our share of our business that was going to first-time home buyers and minorities. And so we had to come up with initiatives that would try to penetrate that market, which up to that point had been dominated either by, let's say, uh, FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, or by um, second-tier type investors that were charging higher rates of interest, more high-cost loans. So we were trying to work with the major financial institutions, all the big banks uh, that were our customers, to come up with with ways to um, to penetrate that market. But as I mentioned. Be- before, as we increased our maximum loan limits, we actually created a really uh, competitive position with the banks for what were called the jumbo loans. Uh, at, at, for a long time, any loan over a certain limit was in the what was called the jumbo market, and the banks would were the primary beneficiaries of that market. They would make loans to, to people at a somewhat higher interest rate. Uh, for loans that were maybe a half a million dollars and up. Well, by the time I'm close to retiring in 2005, our maximum loan limits on on single-family properties were exceeding that uh, level. And so the banks, in order to protect their jumbo market share, they came up with moving into the subprime mortgage business and creating these private label mortgage-backed securities. Um, but uh, while that generated a tremendous amount of business for them, it, tremendous, it created a tremendous amount of uh, fee income for mortgage brokers and kept transaction volume up. It also brought into the market a lot of fraud. And, and as you mentioned about my, my background, the team of people that I uh, managed when I first started working at Fannie Mae, what we did was a percentage selection of all of our business. Lenders would sell us, you know, a thousand loans. We would cherry pick maybe a dozen loans, look at how they were originated, make sure they met our our criteria. We would verify the information on income and employment. We would have properties reappraised just to make sure the lenders were doing the job. In the subprime business, the banks were doing. They were packaging loans, issuing securities that Wall Street would sell. None of that quality control review was in place. Mm. They simply paid a fee to the uh, bond rating agencies, and the bond rating agencies set the rating on those bonds based on data that the banks delivered to them, not on actually reviewing uh, any loans to see, in fact, how they were being originated. So the so the, the the innovations became riskier and riskier, and at Fannie Mae, we had a lot of aching discussion about the fact that our market share was dwindling. From 2000 to 2004, we went from about 
let's say, 25% of the mortgage origination volume down to 17, 16%. And our credit people and our marketing people were fighting back and forth. How do we get our market share back up? And we don't want to get into the subprime business, but you have a lender like Countrywide Funding. You know that name? Well, that was one of the big ones to go belly up. Right. Well, Countrywide Funding was basically our major, uh, it was either our largest or second largest lender that was selling loans to us. And they they came to us and they said, we have all this subprime business that we want, we want to do. Uh, if you don't take that portion of the business, we're going to take our conventional business elsewhere. And so we had, you know, a lot of agonizing over to what extent we would get involved in the subprime mortgage market uh, and to satisfy what leverage a company like Countrywide Funding had with us. Mm. It might be, to give you some perspective, when I started at Fannie Mae in 1984, late 84, we did 80% of our business with about 250 companies. By the time I retired, we did 80% of our business with just eight companies. And several wow. of them were, were overseas financial giants, including uh, the Bank of Australia. HSBC was, was another major lender, as well as Countrywide fin Funding, mm. you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, and a few others. All through mergers and acquisitions. And so... As John Maynard Keynes famously said, you know, if you owe the bank a thousand dollars, you're at the mercy of the bank. If you owe the bank, you know, a billion dollars, the bank's at, at your mercy. Well, we had that same kind of problem with the concentration of how the business was being done in the United States. The big story at the moment is what is happening with the Fed's unwinding of QE3. There's some 1.7 trillion dollars in mortgage bonds and $2.4 trillion in Treasury bonds, uh, which have to be unwound. How is that playing out? In 2008, one of the great fears was, was that credit would dry up because the first thing that happened was the collapse of the private label mortgage-backed securities market, uh, along with the great fear of all of the losses associated with the collapse of the derivatives market. And so people uh, were pulling their money out of those areas in dramatic fashion. Uh, they also abandoned the standard MBS market as well. And that led to having Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac taken into conservatorship. But uh, now, how are you going to, as, as the central bank and as the, as the federal government, try to rebuild the the residential property market. Well, what you have to do is you have to say to the banks and other uh, mortgage originators, if you lend the money, uh, we will buy the paper. And, and so we'll take on the long-term risk, the interest rate risk, and we'll take on the credit risk as well. Uh, so that, that was how they, they tried to rebuild confidence in the property markets. And slowly but surely, as interest rates came down, uh, it meant that people who were still employed and still had uh, a good credit report were able to obtain credit. Uh, it put additional billions and billions back into the economy. And the, the uh, Federal Reserve worked with the banks 
And this is a very complex problem that the, the banks had to meet more stringent risk-based capital requirements. And so what that meant for them is that they had to have more cash on reserve with the Fed, and that restricted their lending to a degree, uh, but the Fed kept putting money into the economy by acquiring not just mortgage-backed securities issued by Fannie and Freddie, but buying uh, government bonds and basically giving the U.S. Treasury money to pay its bills. And that poured billions and billions uh, into, into the economy. The federal government used it to help the automobile industry, to provide credit to, to the import-export businesses, etc. So it got the economy moving again at a fast pace, but a lot of the cash sat and was reinvested by the banks and by the big financial institutions uh, in a much uh, more conservative way so that they could meet these risk-based capital requirements uh, that were in effect under Dodd-Frank and other regulatory uh, measures. Now, with the Republicans and the Trump administration in control, they've basically uh, unwound all of that regulatory environment uh, through you know, this measure that, they, that the Senate has just really uh, just passed uh, recently. Who knows what's going to happen? You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist this week with Ed Dodson, former risk assessor at Fannie Mae, explaining a bit about the background to the global financial crisis from a banker's perspective. Now, Ed, what I'm reading here is that with the slashing of interest rates to record lows, that uh, they're at such a point that uh, it's encouraged all of this extra money to pile into real estate. So we're back at square one with uh, land values again at record prices. Now, the problem uh, we're seeing is that any significant increase in interest rates is going to send many mortgage holders to the wall. So are monetarists cornered? Can they etch up interest rates that have any real effect? Or is monetary policy dead in the water for the next couple of decades? The lowering of interest rates allowed the market to capitalize the increased affordability into higher land prices, into higher property prices. Low interest rates has done as much as it could do because household incomes and household savings were not increasing during the recovery. Uh, even though you know the number of new jobs were, that were created continued to increase, a lot of those jobs were lower lower salaried part-time work there's still high real unemployment in the united states and so the the fed policy has done as much as it can but now it's run into a maximum where the demand for for housing uh, is still there, but housing is no longer in many markets affordable to the household that has the median household income and savings. What can the, the regulators do to stimulate demand? They would have to go back to lowering uh, cash down payment requirements, being more flexible on credit worthiness standards, providing uh, subsidies to developers to uh, acquire land and build more affordable housing. And all of that is really taking place at the margin. And what's happened is that the, the gap in the market, 
there's all this money out there to be invested, held by the banks and financial institutions and even wealthy individuals. And what are they doing? They're putting it into the income producing market. So you have companies that are buying up residential properties and renting them out. And that creates instability in some neighborhoods because you know people who rent a home are less likely to take care of it, less likely to be involved in the community. So there's a risk when more and more of the properties in an area become rental. So that's an asset, however, that can be pooled together uh, into a security and the security sold to investors. And depending on how well it's underwritten, it can be a fairly safe investment. Uh, when when I was doing this kind of business at Fannie Mae, uh, our requirement kept it very conservative. Our maximum loan-to-value ratio on an investment property was 75%. That meant that the property appraisal, uh, the lower of the selling price or the appraisal, was used as the basis for the maximum loan. It could only be 75%. Plus, the income generated from the property had to service at least 90% of the debt. Now, whether or not the banks are, are adhering to these standards today, I don't know. I don't know what their, their standards are. But again, getting back to what is the, the competitive motivation, it's to keep transaction volumes up. It keeps your fee income up and you keep churning the market. So you try to do a lot of refinancing. But What's the motivation for people to refinance? It's either to get cash out of their property for other purposes, or it's to lower their cost, their debt service by by reduced interest rate. Well, you can't get interest rates down much below three and a half percent. The other side effect that this has had in the United States, at least, and I suspect elsewhere, is that it's greatly reduced the interest and dividend income of individuals and households dependent on savings. So, you know, 10 years ago, senior citizens were doing quite well with interest income on money put in money market mutual funds or in CDs. Well, that income has been dramatically reduced to the benefit of borrowers. And that's kind of where we are at the moment with, with all of these uh, policies and what will happen next. I, I, you know, I think the big issue for us in the United States, which has certainly dramatic potential effects for the whole global economy, is the U.S. public debt, what to do about it. And we're going to be at $30 trillion dollars servicing that debt is not easy if you're if you're not going to raise taxes on those who have the ability to pay or you're you're going to cut uh, public services and what are the consequences of putting cutting all this public services putting more people unemployed 3CR radio that's independent progressive and making a difference Ed what would happen if the Fed just minted 30 one trillion dollar gold bullion coins could they pay off their public debt that way what would be the implications of paying off their debt that way you've heard of gresham's law right gresham was this Brit- british economist who came up with this this law and of of how money works and he said bad money chases out good meaning that if you can get someone to accept money that has no uh redemption value 
in gold or silver, you'd, you're certainly going to pay your debts with that money versus paying them with gold and silver. So the de devil's in the details. You, if, if the government monetizes its gold and or silver bullion by coining, uh, coining that, that money into uh, – by taking that, that bullion and coining it with, a, with coins of a, a standard weight and content – and then issuing basically certificates of deposit that are traded. Now you have those that currency competing with the Federal Reserve notes and with all of the other uh, forms of, of paper currency in circulation. So how they would 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 uh, settle, I don't know. But but the inclination I would I would expect to see is that people would acquire. Those certificates of deposit redeem, redeemable in the gold coins and hold them, and you'd see a slow or, or perhaps a, a more rapid depreciation in the purchasing power of Federal Reserve notes or euros, et cetera, against the, uh, the, gold, the gold certificates. Well, it's certainly going to be fascinating to see how Trump and team justify a further extension in public debts but with qe3 unwinding and the market barely flinching are we out of the danger zone where, where does the american and global economy sit we're not out of the danger zone at all we're we're deep and we're deep in uh, potential you know problems but there is this unique position the united states has found itself in for a very long time and that is as bad as our financial system has been managed as 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 terrible as as our economic system is functioning, the rest of the world is still looking to the U.S. dollar as a safe harbor against inflation, and and global commerce still is occurring. Now, take a look at what the Chinese have done. They've done this in Australia. They've done it in the United States. They've done it elsewhere. Um, it was one time what the Japanese did, but they have all these excess dollars, these hot dollars circulating. Uh, and what are they doing with it? They're, they're not buying consumer goods in China. They're taking that and investing it in hard assets in the United States and elsewhere. So they, in fact, are pouring money into the property markets, driving up property prices even more. Uh, and look at what's happening in London. The 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 um, the the anger at so much property being acquired by foreign owners who are just sitting on it vacant when there's a housing shortage. And we have that in San Francisco. We have that in in New York. We have that in other other cities. So uh, there's all this money out there held by the top 1% or one-tenth of 1% of people looking for yield. And where do they find yield? They find, they have found it in, you know, the, the precious metals market. They found it in the property market. And each one of those markets has a limited supply, uh, you know, and so when supply is limited and demand is unlimited, prices are going to go up with a lot of consequences for those at the middle and bottom segments of, of economies. And we have no public policy to deal with that. Repeat. We have no public policy to deal with the land problem, particularly when the financial elite have such a strong grapple hold on our democracy. 
And it's almost as if we're in the middle of an economic thriller. Can the people reclaim democracy from these financiers, from these rent seekers who are pushing public policy towards greater profits for them and greater risks for the everyday person? And doing with a straight face. No <laughs> doubt about it. I mean, look, I constantly have to defend bankers. I, you know, I work in the banking sector with some really dedicated people trying to do the right thing. But the systemic flaws force decisions on many, many executives to try to preserve market share and profit margins that put the whole system at risk in the aggregate. So as every individual player tries to protect their position in the market, the aggregate impact of those activities are to make the, the, the system less and less stable. And there seems to be no way out of that quagmire uh, unless our political leaders would, number one, understand the connection between economic policy, uh, tax policy, and outcomes. And they do not, you know, by and large. The closest we get to this discussion in the United States are the speeches being made by you know, a few economists. Probably Joe Stiglitz is the biggest name you know, unfortunately, the economists that you and I know well and know what's going on, Mason Gaffney, Nick Tiedemann, and even Michael Hudson. Uh, Michael gets the most press, the most media coverage of, of that group of knowledgeable economists, but his coverage is all in the alternative, you know, area. Uh, he's not going to be interviewed on CBS, NBC, or by you know, Rupert Murdoch probably. Well, maybe Murdoch would, would. But the opinions of the people who know what's going on aren't getting heard. Even Fred Harrison's work, which is tremendously important, you know, he has a hard time finding any mainstream outlet for his opinions uh, to compete with what you hear on, you know, the everyday news. The economists that I listen to uh, seem to be earnest, but they do not have a clue between the connection uh, of tax policy and land market price inflation. And that was Ed Dodson from cooperative-individualism.org, an absolute smorgasbord of Georgist uh, historical pieces there from all over the world, uh, certainly well worth uh, delving into some of the incredible speeches from 50, 100, 200 years ago on these same topics that continue week after week. And off air, we discussed how uh, the revelation Lindsay David gave us last week that uh, investors can use the capital gains on one investment property as a deposit on the next prop next investment. That sort of house of cards uh, economic enabler for investors exists in America and sounds like around the world. So yet again, another advantage for investors. I think I've got 27 on my list now. All right, check the show notes at earthsharing.org.au. Do some reading at prosper.org.au and uh, become a member. Support the Renegade Economists. Support 3CR. Support independent voices tying together the great teachings of life on this earth it's not rocket science when you really look at these big picture issues those who own the earth have an incredible advantage over anyone trying to run a business or earn a wage all these privatizations are just pushing up costs as uh, 
these natural monopolies can jack prices up uh, one way or the other. All right, my name's Kyle Fitzgerald. Thanks so much for listening and sharing this with your networks.